And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. Yay! What are we talking about today, Maggie? Today, it's bite-sized bits. The last bite-sized bits of our season. It's 1970, and we're talking about one of Audre Lorde's poems. Yay! Yay! So, before you told me this, I didn't even know Audre Lorde was a poet. I just thought she was, like, a famous feminist theorist. No, actually, most of the work that she published was poetry throughout her time. That's very cool. Very cool. All right. So Maggie has drafted up a comprehensive bio. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit and then she's going to finish it off for us. So Audre Lorde was born in 1934 and lived until 1992 and had an extremely illustrious career in that time period. She described herself as black, lesbian, mother, warrior, poet. And her works were extremely critical and central to second wave feminism, civil rights, and black cultural movements, and struggles for the GLBQT equality. Much of her work focused on social and racial racial justice, and she was outspoken about all of the areas that she felt passionately about. As Alison Kimmich notes noted in Feminist Writers, throughout all of Audre Lorde's writing, both nonfiction and fiction, a single theme surfaces repeatedly. The Black lesbian feminist poet, activist, reminds her readers that they ignore differences among people at their peril. Instead, Lord suggests differences in race or class must serve as a reason for celebration and growth. So Audre Lorde was like, one of the most prolific writers, I think, of sort of the second wave feminism period. She did everything from writing like straight, like feminist theory to writing a journal of the first time she had cancer. That's what she ultimately passed of in 1992 to writing extensive poetry. And I think she also wrote a little bit of fiction too and some screenplays. Like she was really all over the place. So in some ways it was sort of hard to nail down what to talk about for this episode. But obviously the fact that it's Bite Size Best and we're in 1970 helped a little bit. There's a lot of places we could have put her within this series though. Some of her most famous work happened in the late 70s and early 80s. But ultimately I kind of wanted to start at the beginning with her, which means a couple of different things. The first is that Lord was actually criticized relatively gently by some people and more intensely by others that her first couple of collections of poetry weren't black enough essentially in many ways randall dudley described it as described her first collection of poetry as a book that does not wave a black flag but her blackness is there implicit in the bone so in some ways the poems that we're about to talk about are or the poem that we're about to talk about is a little bit different than the work that we you know think of her for most prominently we're about to read a poem called Martha, which was published in 1970 in her second book of poems called Cable to Rage. And part of the reason that we're reading Martha specifically is that Martha is the first place that she ever publicly came out as being a lesbian. 
1970 was a really big year in Audrey Lord's life. It was also the year that she divorced her husband and sort of really like embraced lesbianism in that way. Fun fact, her husband, who was white, was also gay. So they were an interesting Aww. match to begin with, I think, in that way. But they did have two kids together. And motherhood was something that Lord was really thinking prominently about at the time. I think her kids were relatively young at this point, but please don't quote me on that. I'm not entirely sure. So that was something that she was thinking about a lot more at like this point in her life than she was maybe in like 78 when some of her really famous poems about racial injustices were coming out. So Martha is essentially just like this really complex look at like Lord's lesbianism and lots of other things that were going on at the time. I think it's really important to note that Audre Lorde is actually, in many ways, one of the like main foremothers of the idea of intersectionality, which, uh, as you all know, if you've listened to any episode at all by Harmony and I, is sort of really the tenet that we try and drive through every single episode is that we have to look at people as being multifaceted and we can't just talk about people in one way. Um, and we can't talk about movements in one way as if they're singular and exist in a vacuum. So I wanted to kind of shout that out because we're not going to get into a ton of her actual, you know, um, like deep feminist theory. That might be in another episode. I feel like it's not possible to just do one episode about Audre Lorde ever. But yeah, that's some general info about what we're going to be reading and Audre Lorde in general. Do you have anything you want to add, Harmony? Oh, no, I just think she's really cool. And I was really excited to discover the works that you sent me about about her poetry. Like I was I was discovered to see her as a poetry. I've read I've read her auto mythography, whatever it's called. Zami, a new spelling of my name. And that's very poetic. But it was interesting to see like actual poetry. <laughs> it was really cool, actually, while I was doing some more research into her bio. I feel like Audre Lorde is one of those people that everyone like has a vague idea exists but mm. I didn't know a ton about her actually. And interestingly, she was so she was the youngest child, the third child of two West Indies immigrants. And when she was really young, she was considered to be legally blind and she was a little tongue tied. So for her, poetry was one of the main ways that she expressed herself. She's really famous for saying that when she was little and people would ask her a question, she was just like this repository of poetry and people would ask her a question and she would just like, recite poetry that she felt like answered it in some way and she said that she did that until she couldn't find a poem that would express how she felt and that's when she started writing poetry which was when she was like 12 or 13 so poetry in many ways I feel like is what she's not as famous for in a lot of ways but like was really the thread of her career that that went through her whole life she was a poet that entire time even when she was doing other things that's very interesting so before we start, do you want to talk about why we chose this poem? Because there were a few that were published. It's, it, it was published in 1970, right? Yeah, we finally are in a bite-sized bits where we're talking about something that's actually published in the year that we're supposed to be talking about. It only took us all season. I think we've done it at least once before. There has been at least one work I, that I can remember. But anyway, yes. So why why did we choose this poem, this like monolith of a poem? For a lot of reasons, but I think it really was because obviously it's it's pride right now and we're really, especially given the current climate in the United States, trying to celebrate Black queer voices at the moment. Mm. And Martha was Lord's like public coming out. I don't think she had a public relationship with another woman until 1972, but like this was the place where she was just kind of like, yep, I'm a lesbian. 
but it was interestingly embedded in a lot of other things in this poem. Like this poem isn't necessarily exclusively about lesbianism. It's also about how women are treated differently in medical fields and like there's a lot of layers going on here. Oh, interesting. I didn't even pick up on that layer. There was a lot. This poem was hard for me. It like took me until like three pages down to realize what we were talking about. Um, but that's typical when Harmony reads poetry. But yeah, I really liked it too for this time period because we are, um, as we've talked about on this podcast 20 million times, as a nation really reckoning with some of our past horrors and current horrors and also because we have the COVID thing going on. So I feel like there's a lot of uncertainty right now about what our future looks like. And that is a thread that plays into this poem quite a lot. It was actually part of what drew me into it. I was like, oh, look at all that witch language. Look yeah, at all that. That was, also, <laughs> that was also there a lot. It was really, um, it's a very metaphor driven poem, I think. But like ultimately at the end of it, it's this chronicle of Lord talking to a woman named Martha who, or at least the speaker is talking to a woman named Martha, who mm. is dying the entire time, presumably of, of cancer, it seems like, or, or something of that nature. Really, I thought it must have been Alzheimer's, because she's having trouble uh, remembering who she is. I thought that too, but they say that after they talk about being given a really intense medication, so it's hard to know. Yeah. But it, it could be either. She, but essentially, she's dying of, of like a sort of long lived disease the entire time. And so Lord is like, or the speaker is like coming out to Martha and also talking about her life and also talking about the changes in Martha. Robert Kennedy dies in the middle of it. Like, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Okay. All right. So do you want to start? Yeah. So immediately we open up the poem with. A death, which I think is interesting because that's such a sort of pushed against cliche, I think, in a lot of works that have to do with LGBTQ people is that there's there's always death. But I think it's interesting here because I don't think that you get the impression that the the that Martha is LGBTQ. Really? Or do you? you get that? I did. Yes. Okay. I, I'm confused. I'm bad at poetry reading, you guys. I thought there is a line in here. Let me let me find it. Um Loved. See, I thought it could be two, but like there was just so much ambiguity going on. It's also hard to know. I think Martha's white, but I, I'm not entirely sure. I also thought Martha was white. And that was part of why, or like somebody who through Alzheimer's or losing her mind in some capacity has like really um, internalized racism in some way. But I thought she was... She was with, I, I thought her and the speaker were together because there are lines like, we have loved each other. And yes, I hope we still can. No, Martha, I do not know if we shall ever sleep in each other's arms again. Okay. Okay, cool. I'm glad <laughs> that you picked up on that too, because there were parts of the poem where it seemed like Martha really, and again, it was because she's like taking these medications and stuff where she loses parts of herself mm -hmm. seems ambiguous and then there's parts of it like that and it's also difficult because like part of the coming out is that the speaker is telling martha about the fact that she's in love with a woman named francis yeah so it was kind of hard to piece together their relationship but i do think that part of the reason this poem feels so disjointed is because it follows martha's path down losing herself 
Um, which is interesting, right? Because the speaker isn't experiencing that, but the way it's written and the way it becomes jagged and difficult to follow and there's time jumps and time skips and things like that feels very reminiscent of what Martha must be going through. Yeah, like when Robert Kennedy dies, there's a disjointed sort of feeling and it just kind of comes out of nowhere and the speaker is explaining that this is happening to Martha. Like everything... Martha keeps, like, repeating things to herself and trying to remember, it seems. And the text has changed a little whenever Martha keeps repeating things over and over and over again. And the speaker keeps driving this in, like, remember, remember. And then she talks about a new Martha, which is also why I kind of thought that Alzheimer's was happening. Like, yes, this person is dying. But at the very end, she talks about, like, a Martha, a dead Martha, and then, like, a new Martha, which I thought was also very interesting and maybe metaphorical for something that I am not smart enough yet to grasp. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. The way Lord talks about death this entire time is really profound, I thought, because the poem opens up and it talks about, um, we scrape together the smashed image of flesh preparing a memory. No words, no words. And then she also talks about the fact that, let me go to the first part of the poem. Oh, she talks about on the first day you were dead, right? And it doesn't mean that like the Martha was actually dead. It's the first day of diagnosis of like figuring out what's going on. And from there, that's like this whole metamorphosis that happens of like dying, not as necessarily actually dying right but of like losing oneself and one's life at least in in what they had perceived to be normal before yeah oh there's another uh reason why i think martha's a lesbian she flirts with one of her pretty female nurses at one point oh you're right she does and she becomes a favorite of the nurses eventually too (laughs) yeah and and there's a time too when she's like losing her mind sorry to go back to this i just Textual evidence, you know? Oh, this isn't the right document. I've got a lot of things open. Okay, let me go back here. French. Here we go. So this is italicized, which I think means that Martha is talking. And it's got something else interesting that I also want to talk about with you. So it says... I need you. Need me. Le suis, Martha. I do not speak French kissing. Oh, wow. Black and black. Black and beautiful? Black and becoming. Somebody else, maybe. Erica, maybe. Who sat in the fourth row behind us in high school. But I never took French with you, Martha. And who is this Madame Illwright? Who is not me? Which kind of made me think like these were other lovers, perhaps? that Martha had or like girls that she had crushes on or something. I don't know. How did you read that? So that is the famous section of like coming out for Lord. Like that is the part that is attributed to like really being the coming out section. So that Mm -hmm. I also thought was kind of hard. I sort of read it more as almost like a shared memory. Like it was a conversation to me between the two of them, right? Like part of it was definitely Martha reminiscing but then there's also this like black and beautiful black and becoming thing that really I think speaks to the speaker's point of view and the whole I do not speak French kissing thing was really interesting because it's still new to the speaker I think in a way that potentially it was also still new to Lord I thought the italicized parts were 
Martha speaking, but not necessarily exclusively, you know, like it's active conversation between the two women. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So can we talk about the black and beautiful thing? Because we were talking about earlier how we thought that Martha may be white, or I thought another potential thing was that she was black, but maybe didn't know it anymore and like had lost herself somehow. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to say something? I... I didn't really pick up on the clues, I think purposefully, that Martha was probably white until the second and fourth parts. But I think that's probably what was up, especially because I will say in in Lord's personal life, she was really famous and a proponent for interracial relationships. But I also don't know what that line is between like, where Lord and the speaker sort of interconnect and where they diverge. But there's multiple parts in the poem, like the whole second part really, is essentially... Lore or the speaker talking to Martha and sort of combating these like microaggressions that Martha is saying, you know, it starts out by saying, Yes, foolish prejudice lies. So, like, that's where Martha's at at this point, where it almost reminds me of like that point of being sick where like your filter turns off and things that you normally wouldn't say or wouldn't think just start like spilling out of your mouth, you know? Yeah, that's been my experience with people who have been really ill at least is that there like hits a point where things that they wouldn't even normally think start just like coming out of their mouth Mm -hmm. like martha says that she would never hurt the speaker's children for example but then also makes a makes something makes a point where she says to the speaker something like oh you must know my nurse because she's also black and the speaker responds and be like no you know not all black people know each other not even because we grew up in the same place you know yeah yeah, that I want to read that passage because that No, Martha, my blood is not muddy. My hands are not dirty to touch. Martha, I do not know your nurse's name, even though she is black. So that's the 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 thing that you just pulled out there. Part of why I was confused about whether or not she was white, though, was because she is she does keep forgetting herself and the black and beautiful thing. I think before I picked up that these were actually lovers, like I was for a long time, I was just kind of like sitting there being like, are they lovers or are they something else? Like what's what's going on here (laughs) was, yeah, was the black and beautiful thing, like black and beautiful, black and becoming part of me when I was reading this the first time through was like. Is she speaking to, like, a Black woman who has somehow forgotten herself and forgotten how beautiful she once was, or, like, is, who has, like, let oppression tear her down? I don't know. See, I read that part part more as the speaker responding to what Martha was saying and the idea of, like, you know, becoming oneself. And, like, that part to me feels very much like the coming out part, right? Like, there was another part, though, that made me question the... Martha's whiteness. Hold up. I lost it. It doesn't matter, apparently. Uh, To me, it's really just that, like, whole second section of the poem. But something that comes up in the last part of the poem that I think is interesting in the third part is this idea of kindness that really made me think about the fact that, like, women are always charged with being kind, like, even when something terrible is happening to them. Let's see. Here's where it starts.
All the people you must straighten out past your bedside in the utility room, bringing you cookies and hoping you will be kinder than they were. Go away, Mama and Booby. For 30 years, you made me believe I was shit you shout out for the asking, but I'm not, and you'd better believe it right now. Would you kindly stop rubbing my legs and get the hell out of here? Next week, the beauty brings Ted Glack in your, fav- in your old favorite, and will you be kinder, Martha, than we were to the shell, the cocoon out of which the you is emerging? Which really struck me so much is just, like, the expectations that we have of women in this time period of, like... This woman is going through something really terrible and still they're hoping for like kindness and and specifically kinder than they were to her, right? I'm assuming that the that the idea of like coming out of the cocoon is sort of twofold. The first obviously being right like the end of the poem is about this new Martha that's emerging from this illness sort of like in death. But also, I mean, as a coming out poem, right, I'm assuming it also has some sort of double entendre with the fact that, like, people probably weren't super accepting of this woman being a lesbian at the time, right? Like, um, and people probably weren't kind about it as she was sort of coming out of her cocoon. And so there's, like, this double layer of expectation that turns back to her that um, really struck me, I guess, from a feminist perspective. That's very interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I didn't pick up on that. I was too busy trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. But that is a really interesting point. And I'm really glad that you did pick up on it and brought it to my attention. Something else that I want to talk about in this poem um, is the stuff about... uh, well, I don't know where I want to go next. Do you want to talk about uh, the witchcraft in this poem? Because witchcraft metaphors come up at least three very distinct times. Yeah, so we play a lot with divination in this poem. Yeah, the tarot and the oracle come up separately. The tarot and the oracle come up, and it seems as though the speaker is consulting it the second time to see what will happen with, you know, with Martha. When the tarot comes up, let's see. Let me go back to this. Martha, these are replacement days. Should you ever need them, given for those you once demanded and never found, may this trip be rewarding. No one can fault you again, Martha, for answering necessity too well. The gods who honor hard work will keep this second coming, free from that lack of choice, which hindered your first journey to this tarot house. So I think that that kind of is a metaphor for destiny, right? Like Martha had all of these expectations placed on her and she wasn't allowed to be herself. And that's why she wasn't allowed into the tarot house. And now hopefully this new Martha will be allowed. So that's the first instance. And then the second one is, I think, separate from divination. Yeah, it talks specifically about witchcraft being able to move mountains. Yeah, but that's interesting because being a witch traditionally just means that, like, you are the outsider, which Audre Lorde is all about. She's all about embracing her outsiderness and how women should be, how people should be embracing their outsiderness. And Francis, and Francis, Martha, I am in love again. Listen, Francis, I said on the solstice, our summer has started. 
Today, we are witches and with enough energy to move mountains back. Think of Martha. So Francis is the new woman that our speaker is seeing. And they talk about the, the solstice a lot leading up to the mention of witches. And as we know, modern witches and pagans tend to celebrate the solstice. But it's also like it's the time in which lightness becomes dark. Like it's the longest, if it's a summer solstice or if it's a winter solstice, it's something else. But this is a summer solstice. So it's the time in which lightness becomes dark. So it kind of works well with the death metaphor here and with the idea of a new Martha, a new Martha who is able to be her weird, freaky self and live her own destiny because she's dying and therefore she can be reborn to something else. And so the idea of witchcraft was just really nice here. And I liked it because here the speaker is embracing her otherness with her partner and saying that it's magic. And if we embrace that, we are capable of doing more than we are if we, you know, live under the rules that the master has set for us. I really liked that part as well. And I think something else that's interesting about it is that that part ends, think of Martha. So it's like simultaneously once being like, look at what Martha was and wasn't able to do. But then is also like, a, we should, like, we should do this for Martha, for everything Martha couldn't do, for the destinies that she couldn't fulfill for herself as well. Um, and I really like the metaphor of like, togetherness and love as power and it's energy enough to change the world in a like physical and tangible way that really made me interested um and something else that you said that struck me was the the solstice of it's the solstice of lightness to darkness which is really interesting when we consider like the whole black is beautiful like black is power thing right like she the speaker is finding this joy in like quote unquote darkness right in blackness and in some ways it feels like for the first time because she's been able to put together all of these parts of herself for the first time and find herself whole and beautiful that's what pride is all about oh my god maggie that's so beautiful this is a really beautiful poem as like as difficult as it is to read because it's a disjointed poem about the process of like death and rebirth and what happens in that it's also this like really wonderful and empowering poem simultaneously and i'm really impressed by the way that lord is able to kind of put both of those things together yes me too me too because it does come across as really sad but if you read it deeper you do see all of these messages and and even the ending when we talk about like martha dying like it's still there's still something hopeful about it because now something new can emerge Exactly. Like the last two lines of the poem are, you cannot get closer to death than this, Martha, the nearest you've come to living yourself. So like, there's something beautiful about this idea that like, even though she is on the cusp of death, she's been stripped away of many of the things that she was forced to be. Um, and in some ways, that's bad, right? I think we see that in that second passage of like, in some ways, we're stripping things down to like, the bare bones of what society has pressed into your mind as like stereotypes and truths. But in other ways, like Martha has never been able to live herself and her truth more freely. I think there's something that complicates that is all of the passage in all of the part in the second passage. Let me pull it up really fast. 
No, you cannot walk yet, Martha, and no, the medicines you are given to quiet your horrors have not affected your brain. Yes, it is very hard to think, but it is getting easier, and yes, Martha, we have loved each other, and yes, I hope we still can. So we talked about the last part of that already, but I think this is the part that I misread earlier. I think you're right, and she probably does have Alzheimer's or something like that upon upon like this reading of it, and that... In some ways, Martha is closer to herself, but in some ways she feels farther away from herself. And the speaker is forced to lie to her, I think, and say, like, no, these medicines that we're giving to save your life haven't altered you in any way. Like, no, it, even though it's hard to think it's going to get better and stuff, you know? So, like, there's also lies that the speaker has to tell to Martha as I think things that she probably thought of herself as being essential or also stripped away by modern medicine. Do you think that's part of why this poem is so disjointed? Because the speaker like knows she's she's the one imposing things on Martha. She's lying to Martha so that Martha will behave so that Martha can get saved, right? I think in certain ways, yeah. And I think that that's also really difficult because that, like, I've had multiple family members die of Alzheimer's and dementia. And that, like, to a certain extent is a place that you end up having to be in. Because when somebody can't place themselves in time, it's not even just to save them. Just, like, things get dangerous for that person, right? Because they don't understand the limits of their own body or where they are and stuff like that. Um so I think that that has to do with part of the disjointedness. I think also, though, the speaker spends a lot of time actually listening to Martha and trying to make sense of what Martha is saying as well to, like, honor what is left of the old Martha in some ways as much as she can, even as she's being reborn into this new Martha who's on the cusp of death. Yeah, that makes sense. I was also curious, earlier you mentioned how this poem brings up how we treat women differently in medical fields, and I didn't pick up on that at all. So I would love if you gave me your thoughts on that. So there's a couple of places where I really see that. The uh, first is in the first part, but it has to do with the Robert Kennedy thing, and I think that that's more complicated. So I'm going to start in the third part, if that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Not that I don't want to talk about the Robert Kennedy thing. I do. I just kind of want to start where... It makes, I think it's clearest. It is the middle of August and you are alive to discomfort. You have been moved into a utility room across the hall from the critical ward because your screaming disturbs the other patients. Your bedside table has also been moved, also which means you will be there for a while. A favorite now with the floor nurses who put up a sign on the utility room door. I'm Martha here. Do not forget me. Please knock. A golden attendant named Suki bathes you as you proposition her. She is very pretty and very gentle. So, like, she's literally moved into a utility room. And part of it is because she's so disoriented and so upset that what's happening, that she's disturbing other patients. But, like, she is literally put in a utility room. And then also part where that really stood out to me is that 
It's not until she's so delirious that she becomes a favorite of the nurses. Prior to that, she doesn't seem to really be super listened to by the nurses. And prior to that, a lot of the explaining we get of what's happening to her, like that part in the second section that we just read, is the speaker having to explain things to her, right? Like explain what's happening in the best way possible. But then also the part about Robert Kennedy really struck me because... It starts out by talking about the fact that everyone has given up hope on Martha, like on the eighth day at the very beginning of the poem, when Martha says that she's still trying, like she startles the doctors when she comes out of this like coma state, essentially. No one was expecting her to continue trying or to want to continue trying. And then it moves on to talk about the fact that Robert Kennedy is shot in the head and how he has better chances than Martha does. And part of it is because he was shot, but part of it is because the speaker says surgery was never even considered an option for you. Like there's ways in which this man in power, even though he was shot in the brain because he's a man in power, just inherently has better chances than Martha does, even though we're technically dealing with two afflictions of the brain. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. So they just give up on her. They don't even like fight for her. But the nurses seem to like the nurses seem like they're caring, but and we don't really see anything about a doctor, do we? No, not except for the very beginning of the poem where it talks about the fact that she startles the doctors. But again, yeah. some of the stuff with the nurses doesn't happen until like Martha is completely changed, right? Until she's at the end of her life in the utility room. <laughs> Aww. So yeah, that just really struck me because like women especially black women even though martha isn't black i just feel like it's important to bring up these statistics anyways but Hmm. women are treated much differently than men are in medical situations and especially black women are significantly more likely to die or be maltreated um in medical practices which is really harrowing to think about so i think it's interesting that lord brings it up here as well That, like, a man who is literally shot in the head has better chances of being saved than Martha does. And part of it is because, of course, we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's. But, like, I think part of it is also implied that because he's Robert Kennedy, there's just more resources that are inherently going to, like, go toward him. Yeah, that makes sense. He is the man. He's the man on top. He's the president. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about with this poem? No, I think that I think that we talked about everything that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything else that you want to talk about, either about Lord in general or this poem? No, I'm all I'm all analyzed out. I tried, you know, poetry is hard. This is uh this is Maggie's month of pride poetry, and we all get to see <laughs> my limits when analyzing poetry this month. <laughs> oh, I mean mine too. Uh, poetry is because it relies so explicitly on metaphor, especially to be frank, the poetry that I really prefer. Uh, (laughs) And I pick most of our poetry for whatever reason. I think there's lots of vagueness in it, but I think that's part of the reason that it makes it so beautiful. And that way, and that way poetry really reminds me of intersectionality because you can pick things apart in so many different ways because there's so much less concrete images it's not as binary, too. Like, because because it's a metaphor, right? Like, it exists without outside of the binary. Uh, last week, yeah, last week, <laughs> Maggie was talking about how much she loved the idea of pride and poetry going together. And I think, like, for me, I think that's partly why, like, poetry refuses to be just one thing. And it can be applicable to so many other things. 
And it is just like a weird little art form, you know? It's very... (laughs) And it's one that over time has really just thrown all of the rules away. Like, if you look at the history of poetry, it used to be so regimented. Like, all poetry used to be really regimented and things like that. You know, we had sonnets, we had guzzles, we had so much strict structure. And then at some point, we just threw it all away and said, fuck it, free verse forever, you know? And I like (laughs) that, though, because structured poetry still does exist and still really does have purpose. But, like... There's also a place in poetry where literally anything goes. I And I think that traditional prose has places like that too, but not in quite such a break every single rule there is out there sort of way. That's just my opinion, though. Poetry is dismantling the master's house. Yeah, man, it is. But yeah, so I guess... My, my last little bit here about Audre Lorde is you should definitely check out more of her work than the stuff that's really famous. Her poetry is really nice and complicated and to, to dig into. And especially if you're interested in some of the really outspoken work she did about racial injustice, I highly suggest that you check out Power, which came in out in her 1976 book, Cole. If I wasn't attempting to keep things around 1970, I probably would have pulled that one. But I I do attempt to not break my own rules all the time in bite-sized bits. So I would like to highly recommend that. But yeah. Do we think that this was a feminist poem? Yes. I, there's a mention of a husband somewhere and I don't know if the doctors are men, but like, that's it. That's it. It's all woman. Uh, So it passes my Bechdel test. Check. (laughs) and it's about I don't know I mean like it's about somebody coming into themselves or they're in a capability to come into themselves but somebody is definitely empowered by the end of this so I say yes check and check yeah I totally agree and also just like Audre Lorde is such a such a staple in feminist writing that I feel like you would be hard-pressed to find something by her that didn't have feminist themes in it which isn't to say that you should just like accept people as being part of that like feminist canon blindly but I think that this poem just talks so much about women's issues and stars so many women and like I mean, it's literally just like this beautiful coming out poem about women love loving women. So yeah, I feel like I mean, I'm not saying that lesbians can't like have internalized sexism or can't suffer from any of that, but I do feel like it's. It's harder to find when you're reading stuff about queer women because you you're taking out like it just inherently feels kind of feminist to me because it's like we don't even need you. You know, it's funny that you say that, though, (laughs) considering what we're what the first book of next season is going to be, which is all about internalized sexism in women who love women. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Which I'm reading currently. So maybe my perspective on that will change very soon. (laughs) Um. What do we have homework for this week? Uh ooh, ooh, okay. What is my homework for this week? I'm gonna do something artistic. Nice. I've uh I've been lacking my artisticness, and I think that art is great, and I think that it fits well with pride. And you know, art is great because you don't have to necessarily do anything with it. It can be just for you, and I think that that is inherently um kind of a revolutionary act because the capitalist system doesn't want us to do shit that's just for us and doesn't want us to create things that are just beautiful. So yeah, what about you, Maggie? I think that my uh, homework for this week is actually going to be to continue to read some more of Audre Lorde's poetry 
in order to do this episode, I had to buy a compilation of most of her poetry, which like is totally fine. But I think I'd just like to read more about it because I really do just most even even after this episode and all of the research that I did for it, which of course, there's always more that could have been done and things like that. Please let us know if we said anything you disagreed with. But it just made me really curious about her. And also she just writes the kind of poetry that like, really jives with my personal tastes so i think i'm going to continue down my little audrey lord path as as part of as part of pride and of course continue to fight for black queer rights that's just a guess at this point yes (laughs) we'll be talking about that every every episode until we're done i'm reading a few books again so i started zadie smith's on beauty and i found it really really nice and i had to stop a little bit because i have other reading commitments that i need to be getting to and as you know, I'm reading our first book for next season, which is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, who was my favorite author of 2019, I believe. Was it 2019 or 2018? It was 2019. Yeah, it must have been 2019 because we read that for the podcast. Yeah. Well, I I was reading it while we were podcasting. Yeah, she's a wonderful writer and I'm just so happy to like dig into her work again. She's just, she jives with me so much. And I started reading... <laughs> I started audiobooking for a a book club on anarchy. Please hold. Do, 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 do. It's a really trippy book. And it's written by a white man, which is kind of uncommon for me And during these times. It's been a while since I've read anything by a white man. I think the last thing was Breakfast at Tiffany's. And I think that was uh, 2018. All right. So it's called Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand by Samuel R. Delaney. So... I've been audiobooking that, and I'm still audiobooking Order of the Phoenix by the Turf That Must Not Be Named. What about you, Maggie? I'm reading War and Peace still, although I'm almost done, which will be at odds with what I tell you next episode, because we recorded these out of order. (laughs) And I'm reading What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young. Oh, cool. Okay, cool. really, Which is a really funny book, also, just to put it out there. If you're somebody who is like, (laughs) really been digging into the heavy nonfiction texts about racism and anti-racism work in the United States and you need to just like come up for a little gulp of air I would like to highly recommend this book to you because Damon Young he talks about the really hard stuff about racism in the United States and what it means to be black in the United States but he's just an inherently really fucking funny person (laughs) so it does feel a little bit like not lighter necessarily but a little bit like hope at the end of the tunnel you know? Yeah, I like that. That's good. I'm excited. I'm excited to uh, check that title out. All right. Uh, next week, we're coming at you with zines by, with, with like our Maggie, our friend, Maggie's friend, Maggie's friend, best friend from high school, Meg. She's yeah. brilliant. And she makes a lot of zines. Um, so we just kind of talked to her about the history of zines. It'll be really good. It's a good episode. <laughs> you should check it out. It's also the last episode of our season. That's right. That's right. And then we'll be coming at you again in late August. So you're going to get a little break. It's exciting. It's exciting for us. Maybe it's not exciting for you. Maybe it's great for you. Maybe you secretly uh, hate listening to us, in which case, I don't know why you're here. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Check out our social medias, though, especially our Instagram, RGBC pod, to find out more about when we're coming back at you with In the Dream House, Uh, because that's where I'll be posting all of that information. It'll be in our link tree. It'll be on our Medium page. That's where you should be looking. (laughs) all right bye folks bye 
You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh, all the